We're in the middle of a series around the book of Acts. I'm not sure if you're into this uh, story or if you've been through Acts before. We're in chapter 2, taking two weeks on the second chapter as it establishes the beginning of what the new covenant is going to look like on earth in the name of Jesus This is really this establishment of replacing temples, going from Old Covenant temple experience and expectations to a new temple we call church in the New Covenant, and what that's going to look like based on the teachings of Jesus and the way in which his promises are going to be fulfilled. In chapter 1, Jesus spends his time with his disciples and with a multitude of others over a season of about 40 days before he ascends to heaven Um, where we wait on him to come back for what has been termed as a second coming that we hear about at the end of the old earth and the old heaven, and there'll be a new earth and a new heaven, and we can dream and talk and have weird conversations around what all of those things would look like. He has ascended. His disciples were waiting. The peers of Jesus, the group, the community that followed him over this season of his ministry were waiting, there was fear, there was anxiety, there was confusion, and there was an anticipation that what he had promised was coming to pass, and that he had resurrected, and that something new was coming, but there was a, it's here, but wait. In the first part of chapter 2, we see that the Holy Spirit from God descends upon The believers that are in this upper room, and we have people speaking in different languages, really interesting when you take into the context of how languages came about, that that was a, it's not good for you all to speak the same language because you're trying to build a tower to get to heaven on your own, and there was a separation in this story. I will create languages in order to keep you from hurting yourself and getting too high up to fall down, because that would be a really weird fall. Humanity all in unity wasn't really in unity. There was this divisive, we're going to be like God kind of thing happening in the Tower of Babel story of God saying, maybe I should separate this and slow the process down a little bit to this Acts 2 conversation where he's saying, what if I'm still the God who can speak to all of you no matter what your language is? And brings it back. And he brings this dialogue back, pursuing unity and saying, I want you to be together. I've always wanted you to be together. But sometimes you get in your own way and you keep yourselves from being together. Here's my spirit. My spirit's goal is to keep you together. And in response to that, the crowd says, these guys don't know these languages. They're not trained in this. They're from an area that does not have a high education level, their public school system is not giving them a passing grade on multilingual understanding, how do they know these things? They must be drunk. Peter's response to that, it's too early in the morning, give us an hour, we'll be there. And then he starts to speak the name of Jesus and shares what we would say is the good news of Christ in that no matter what role we have played in our own guilt and shame, He is resurrected and has resurrected our stories in that. No matter the role, no matter the past, no matter the history, Peter presses on that really hard of, we did this, we crucified him, this was our fault, 
we watched and celebrated in that weekend and got caught up in this agonizing pain caused by us on the Savior of the world, we got caught up in it. And even us, even those who denied three times, even those of us who chanted as he went down, even those of us who said we were with him and then in our hearts were scared for our own lives, all of us, we're, we're back in. Everybody's back in. And in that first section, the inclusion and equality that is the kingdom of God ignites the crowd to say, what do we need to do to get back in? Peter responds by saying, repent, recognize you're part of this, recognize that you carry guilt and shame, recognize that there is a spirit at work that's saying, hey, we're not all clean in this story, be baptized, reflection of immersion in water and resurrection into new life, be clean and stay together. And the story says there are about 3,000 joined in that story that day. Church moved from about 120 to 3,120 for those of us who are statistical and want to make sure that we know how the church is growing. I was part of that church one time that actually went to a conference about making our church an Acts 2 church. And the conversation the entire weekend around that was to take a look at this process and see whether or not this methodology that is presented in Acts 2 would actually produce 3,000 new believers. I was in the meeting where I was asked to present a budget on what the youth ministry would look like when the church had gone from 550 to 3,550 because this is the promise of God. When you do this, the Lord will add 3,000 to your church. And if the youth standard youth ministry is 10% of that, what's your youth ministry going to look like when we hit about 350 students and you have a budget to be able to go after them? Like I was in that meeting of like we're going to hit this place where we're going to have 3,000 more people come in and you need to be ready to be the youth minister of that church because we believe we're becoming an Acts 2 church. There's an author and church planter um, named Ch- Tony Jones and in 2011 he said everyone was coming to him and saying the same thing. We're going to go plant Acts 2 churches. And his response to all of them were, have you read past Acts 2 because all the posers start dying? Like, are you sure that's what you want to build? Because after Acts 2 and there's this conversation and there's this push of what the church could be and these thousands come in, everyone had a bad motivation or were trying to build the wrong thing. They start getting sifted through this process and it's not really, it's not really pretty. Are you sure the Acts 2 church is what you're supposed to build? Are we sure that the Acts 2 church is the church that God's inviting us to build? It's really, a, I think, a healthy question. So many times we get caught in aspects of the story of God and in Scripture and we we get hung up on it and we build our lives around it and sometimes it was for a moment. Sometimes for it was the beginning of something. Sometimes it was to establish this new covenant but it's not necessarily exactly how we're supposed to to live and and to breathe and I, I feel that at Echo that if, is it, possible we could read through Acts 2 and, and walk away today feeling shame because we're empowered by God but we're not a mega church. That would be a terrible conclusion. That would be an enemy winning. 
if we looked at something and said, oh, well, when the gospel is presented right and the people begin to hear, thousands come into a church building and become part of something, and that's how you know if you're doing it right. I've participated in some of those churches, and I don't know that all of them are doing it right. I'm not saying all of them are doing it wrong. I haven't been to all of them. But I could say that it would be heartbreaking for this amazing community to go into Acts chapter 2 and to have the shame of something else be written on us when there's so much beauty to the Acts chapter 2 church that is being built here. Because I felt it for a lot of years. I spent meeting after meeting in a church being asked to produce every month what my numbers looked like. How many came to Jesus? How many did this? How many are in your discipleship groups? And those numbers are meaningless if we don't know names. Names matter to God. Numbers, he uses those sometimes. And it's kind of impressive when you look and go, well, 3,000 people came to Jesus on this day. But there were tens of thousands of people in the same street in the same moment, right? Like, the percentages actually weren't that great. On the day of Pentecost, all the Jews were there, like all of them, from everywhere. They actually list that out in the beginning. They're like, they came from everywhere, from miles and miles. This was a pilgrimage day, so we've got tens of thousands of people. And the first sermon preached on behalf of Jesus gets less than 10%. As we look and feel shame sometimes when we look at the success of others, instead of putting it into the context of what it looks like when a movement actually starts, something healthy, something beautiful, something fun, something that we all get to be a part of. So we're just going to take a few minutes this morning and talk about what the actual aspect of church culture should look like instead of maybe the church culture that you were brought up in, or maybe the lack of church culture that you never had. Because we don't know what the church should look like if we don't take a look at what the church actually is. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 is where we're going to spend time. But first, I want to set up Jesus' conversation around the church. In John 14, verse 26 and 27, it says, But the advocate, this is Jesus speaking, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Very interesting that Jesus said, when I send the Holy Spirit, which happened at Pentecost, I'm sending you peace. I'm not sending you anxiety. I'm not sending you trouble in your heart. I'm not sending you fear. I am leaving my peace with you. Maybe we just pause and stop right there. Have you felt it this week? I don't know how many conversations I have been in internally with myself or with people around me that are overwhelmed with anxiety, trouble, just a spirit of disheartened approach to life, criticism, Anger, frustration, 
something else is happening. There's the promise that the gifting of the Spirit was It is true. In a mega church, I would have had eight other microphones on. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I need that. Do you? Because we could be done right here in the midst of all of it. He just dropped peace into the world and just invited us to find it, to hold on to it, to long for it, and to wait. Whatever's overwhelming, it's not him. Whatever's breaking you, it's probably not him. Just know. Know there is light in the midst of the trouble and the chaos and the loneliness There is peace in this world because Jesus left it here. And he loves playing hide and seek. He is the God of chasing. He's the God of adventure. I have had to choose in this past week personally to go chase peace because it wasn't sitting where I was. It wasn't in the room where I had chosen to hide. And I had to decide to leave and get out and go find it. The Holy Spirit's engagement in the world starts with a promise of peace. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Steve shared this with us a few weeks ago. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is about to happen in Acts chapter 2 is in response to these two things. My peace is here. I give it to you. The advocate is coming. The advocate of peace is coming so that you can be witnesses to the world on behalf of the advocate of peace. That's what Jesus has put together for us. I've left peace in the world in spite of everything that you see and feel. I'm sending you the advocate of peace to navigate you to it and you will be my witnesses both in the city that you live, in the areas around it, and to the ends of the earth on behalf of this good news. Peace is here. All are welcome to it. My spirit will guide you as you celebrate it and find it together. It's really the empowerment of the Holy Spirit into the world. Welcome to the kingdom of peace. When you feel trouble and anxiety, know it is not from this kingdom. And that you don't have to stay in it. And if you are the victim of it. If I am the victim of trouble and anxiety and depression, I get to send a flare up and say, Oh, peace of Jesus, come find me. And that is when God empowers his spirit-filled people to come find us. And he sends his spirit out. And we come to know Jesus because we find good news in the context of chaos. 
when the Spirit both works in us and is around us. And this is how Luke records the response to that Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In this text, there are four rhythms of the church. And if we can like lock in on these rhythms then we can speak against the shame and the burden that we carry. Just reading that, I felt overwhelmed because my schedule feels like I'm not able to make what just happened in that scripture happen. We're in a lot of places a lot of time. Maybe you are too. I spent two hours a day sitting on I-71 because, man, that thing. And there are moments that I feel like I'm not able to be the church because I'm too busy working on behalf of it. And I feel overwhelmed even just reading that text. But when I start to look at the rhythms, I start to see that there's peace inside the chaos because there are rhythms in God's kingdom. And here they are, the rhythms of the church. There's a rhythm of learning. There's a rhythm of sharing. There's a rhythm of being. And there's a rhythm of praying. The rhythm of learning. In Acts 2.46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. I'm glad these two things were combined because the temple courts, public environment, this is an atmosphere of learning. People would go to the temple courts. You could throw out a, a philosophical thought. You could throw out a piece of scripture. Jesus could stand up in a court and read a passage from Isaiah, and people would talk about it even when he's 12. You would be in this temple area, and you would talk about the things that you wanted to know about, wanted to debate, or the things that you wanted to put to rest that this is not something that we're going to do, and let's go stone that person because they're outside of the will of God. You would go to the temple courts and have dialogue and discussion. Public environments, it it seems like Even in these discussions, there could be between 800 and 1,000 people that would gather in these temple courts. And the apostles would say, one day I remember now that Jesus said, you heard to love your neighbor as much as they've loved you, like a few times. I'm going to tell you, actually love your neighbor as yourself. Like, not as you've been loved by them, but as yourself. What do we do with that? They would come in and say, you, Jesus told us one day that we've heard it said that we should turn, return to our enemy what they've given to us. But he actually said this thing about 70 times 7, and they started doing the math. We've been doing that for like thousands of years since. How many times do I have to forgive someone kind of conversation? What do we think about that? You, you could have that discussion in community, but he also says, Lucas said, but the, There weren't just these public church gathering, big discussions around the apostles' teaching. People were just going to houses. And they were having discussion around what this new thing, this new temple looked like 
because they didn't know, and there was a healthy ignorance. They weren't all there. There were just a few who had been at these teachings with Jesus, and then there were some we see in the 40 days of Jesus that Jesus shared things with people that weren't apostles, and so even those communities are coming and going, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he walked with us on this road, and he told us these things. Does, does that count? And I can imagine even a day where the apostles are going, oh, wait a minute, you guys didn't walk with Jesus for three years and aren't anointed apostles. Are we sure that we want to count this? But that really sounds like Jesus. I think we should include it. There were dialogues in public and private spaces around the teachings because they didn't know what they didn't know. Did you know that the Greek word for disciple just means to become a learner? To become a learner. Now, there are lies hidden within this, and this is where I found myself. The lies are, I know more than the people in charge. I should be an apostle. Why isn't anyone listening to me? That creates division. I didn't grow up in church. I don't understand these things. He just put a Greek word up there. I don't even understand those letters. I'm too ignorant to belong or to lead. I shouldn't throw my opinion in when we start to talk about these things. These are the subcultures of things that happen within the church. Is either we have arrogance or we have ignorance. Our arrogance keeps us from learning because we believe that we're too intelligent or too wise or too trained or we're paying off too many degrees. That's me. In order to be an expert, and so we struggle to humble ourselves as students and to listen and learn. But the truth is, none of us have experienced the gospel of Jesus in the context of 2019 before. So none of us are experts at what the gospel looks like in being inclusive and loving and grace-filled and centered on justice in this moment. And so we have to get out of the way of ignorance and into an understanding of learning of saying, who knows what this looks like and what does it look like now? Full transparency for me. When I showed up at Echo and I watched Steve teach, I went, this church will not like me because I tell stories and he has really cool like pictures and things from places that don't exist anymore the same and like they're awesome. History, training, teaching, Breaking down where it's, it's his model of teaching. And I thought, wow, they're going to hate my stories. I learned through stories. It's just how I do things. And it almost divided us. Because I got in my own head of like, if this, if this works, that won't. I'm glad we pushed through it because I love listening to Steve teach every week. And I like telling stories. And I think they can live together. And I think they can be in the same space. But man, there was a lie at first that it's like, this isn't going to work because of the second of my ignorance of saying, I don't know as much as Steve. So I should give up. Does arrogance or ignorance impact the way that you learn? Because you have a voice in this church. And as we learn together, we will see what the church of 2019, 2020, 2030 
is going to look like as we learn together how to navigate good news. The second, I have a quote up there, we'll skip that. Sharing. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And this is where we pass the plate around or the box, right? Like, and you have to like, write checks to us. Because this passage is always used for that. And it has very little to do with that. It has everything to do with the community of sharing. The word fellowship comes from the word koinonia. We use it as this like fellowshipping. It gives me trauma because I had to go to fellowship lunches after church on Sundays in the church I grew up. And it was just like just casserole dishes full of starch. It was just like you can have one piece of starch, two pieces of starch, seven pieces of starch. We have a heart attack here at the end, and then you can go home into a food coma while you watch football, but make sure to be back by at 6 o'clock for youth group. Fellowship for us was just an opportunity to eat, and I remember growing up in this church that would split within a year and watching fellowship dinners happen among people who didn't like each other. I'd be like, well, you guys, you came for my mom's barbecue chicken, and then to also talk about her at the table. Huh, that's interesting. Is that what fellowship looks like? The word koinonia actually is just a way for us to share in common as the basis of fellowship. What does it look like for the church to share our possessions because we share in common because of our fellowship? Not because we have to, not because the church is shaming us to, not because we grew up believing that if you didn't give 10%, God was going to smote you out for some reason in your life and just take you out of his kingdom. And the reason that your car kept breaking down is because you weren't tithing and God was trying to get your attention. This passage has been used for some of that stuff. This passage doesn't work when we have the possibility of an enemy getting in through the lens of disparity. When we have disparity of assets in our life, we don't want to share because we feel beholden to. You either feel oppressed or you're the oppressor. But when we see each other equally, we want to share open-handedly, not with what's expected of me, but with what I love to tell the world about. Last weekend, my wife went to two shows within like six hours, one at Aronoff, one at Music Hall, because two friends said, hey, I've got extra tickets to these shows. Would you like to go? And of course, she was like, yes. It does not now mean that we are codependent on those two people for any future shows that we ever go to at the Aronoff or Music Hall. We now do not decide that because they shared once with us that it's now their job to be the ticket sharers in our life. Just because we share once doesn't mean that we're now labeled to be the person who always has to share that. We just get to share. So when we get into a rhythm of sharing what we have and who we are, we find that others want to share back with us. But when we believe that there's a disparity between what we have and who we are, then we can cease to share with other people because we believe we worked hard for our things and maybe they didn't. And God is teaching them a lesson. He's going to teach them how to work hard and then they'll get to share with us. Instead of us saying, hard work may have produced this, but I don't know that hard work is what produced it. I just know I have it. 
and I love to work. And now I get to share. Our commitment to share could look like us sharing our stuff, our energy, our life, our grace, our justice, our story. And what do you fill in next? The rhythm of the church is to share. The third is being. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were just being together. Being together implies social interaction, practicing presence, reconciliation, and remembrance. And here's how I get there with that. Social interaction, it's really hard to break bread with other people or eat a meal when you're alone. Just, I know, minds are blown right now. You're like, wait a minute. It is really hard to eat with other people when I'm by myself. Social interaction. We have a room full of introverts and extroverts. There is no expectation on us as introverts as to what social action, interaction looks like except to just be present. It's okay. I have a friend who by the end of the week, when it is Friday, she needs to not interact with people for a good two days so that she can refuel in order to exist in a public job and community with other people. Her life involves usually a bottle of wine. Sometimes she lets her husband join her with that. And she's like, other times, because he's an extrovert, she's like, go, game night, two nights in a row, you're all in, I'm out. We can find our own ability to interact socially, but we do get the invitation to interact socially because we all need to be there in order to know that everyone's welcome there. If I don't know how you're wired or your rhythm of life or your voice or what you like or what you dislike, I can't figure out how to include you. And you the same for me. Just being present. The aspects of reconciliation and remembrance come in time when we know specifically here in this passage, breaking bread together both meant a meal and it meant at the end of the meal taking and participating in what we just participated in taking the last bit of wine and taking the last bit of bread and saying, this is the piece that was broken. This is what was poured out. Let's be reconciled through allowing Jesus' blood to be poured out, his body to be broken, so we can stop breaking each other in this space. Is there anything that needs to be healed before we go home? Let's have Eucharist as part of our dining experience and not just as a sacrament that happens on Sunday. And they would break bread together. And they would reconcile, and they would remember. Jesus asked us to remember what I did for you. There's time for social interaction, there's time for us connecting, and there's also time for reconciliation and remembrance just by being present in life with one another. And the fourth, praying. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We, we saw that they were committed to the prayers is actually how it's listed in verse 42. The prayers actually include the Shema from the Old Testament, um, from the Old Covenant. It, it would include praying through the Psalms as a religious ritual that most Jews were doing at the time. Shema gets prayed three times a day. And you would pray through the Psalms. And then they were adding the prayers of Jesus in. They were very 
like routine in the way that they were praying. They weren't depending on everyone to be able to have their personal connection with God. They were saying, let's continue praying this, this Shema. The Lord our God is one. Cool. Let's pray through the Psalms. And let's add the prayers of Jesus into our routine of praying together. That's in verse 42. And then we get to the end in verse 47. And we're still in our homes eating together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, worshiping, and enjoying all the, the favor of all people. I would say this is the product of a community that prays together. We still want to be together. We want to exalt God because he's keeping us together. And we're finding favor in a community and it doesn't make sense. This is the product of praying together as a community. We stick together in spite of whatever, through whatever, in anticipation of whatever. But we stay together if the enemy of learning is ignorance and arrogance, if the enemy of sharing is disparity, if the enemy of being is division, then the enemy of prayer is ego. Either I believe it's my responsibility to make my future happen, or I believe that I have no responsibility in making any future happen, and I just have to take what's coming. A praying community believes that the future is our responsibility as we are witnesses to the world on behalf of the spirit of peace. These are the rhythms of the church. I wanted to give you the opposite side because that's the attack that's going to come against us. If the rhythm of the church is to learn, to share, to be, and to pray, and if there is an enemy that would want to thwart that, if we just go with that assumption, wouldn't it be true that the enemy of the community of Jesus that would want to bring chaos and discontent and overwhelm the peace that is the kingdom of God would be one of arrogance, ignorance, disparity, division, and ego so that it can crush peace. So my challenge this week for myself is to see which one of these four rhythms that I need to re-engage in in order to do a little bit better at? Do I need to learn, share, be, or pray? Just pick one. And which one of those task tactics of an enemy do I need to speak against and get out of my own life? Because I want to be part of this. And I don't have to do it alone. The Holy Spirit is the one who will empower me to grow in the area that I need to grow and to destroy the area that I've given in to the enemy. And so we can depend on him. Let's finish with prayer. Jesus, we praise you for giving us this Holy Spirit. We praise you for the cross, for the resurrection. We pray that your spirit would be the advocate of this church. Take us to peace this week. Teach us what we need to learn. Show us what we can share. Share with us what we are lacking. Be with us.
Be with those of us that feel really alone right now. Be with us. And speak with us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.